I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I am delighted to be joined today by Matt Ortile, who is the managing editor at Catapult. His writing has been published by BuzzFeed, Into, Self, and Out, among others. And his debut essay collection is called The Groom Will Keep His Name. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Maris, for having me. How are you? Okay, you? Yeah. Uh, apologies if you can hear the festivities outside my apartment. But um, yeah, how are you has become this weird, strange question that is like, it's a verbal tick, but also, you know, what else do you say? Yeah. Really? It's really really historic period in time. <laughs> and it's, ooh, yeah, I never quite imagined I'd be living through it. And that's very good and very bad at the same time. Oh, very. Yeah, I'm glad to be a part of it. It's wild that I published a book in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is wild. And, and one thing, I, I mean, not one thing, I noticed many things about your book, but like you were preparing for this moment. Even, even in the pages of your book, even in the talking about moving to New York City, and there's a line from, uh, who was it? E.B. White. E.B. White. Mm. E.B. White wrote about how the city is the center of pandemics. <laughs> mm, exactly. Like, it is absolutely vulnerable to things like flooding and storms, obviously, Sandy, and uh, pandemics, obviously, COVID. And it's wild that E.B. White was writing that, like, years, decades before any yeah. of happened in, in the old millennium. <laughs> old millennium. Uh, and so now it's all kind of coming true. He had this really interesting foresight in uh, the little long essay that he wrote, Here is New York. And it's wild, but I mean, he talks about the sort of folks who are pulled to New York too, and the way that we come here to begin. And I really thought that that was so poignant. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. He, I really turned it into like sort of as an immigration kind of thing, but he uses it as more metaphor. 
But I, I think it was so fitting to think about it in that way. And so many of us who, li- who do live here come from different places. And now many of us have chosen to stay through this pandemic mm-hmm. and we're the ones now currently fighting for our city. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, there, there's an idea of this is the hardest-ish place to live. And um, it's, we're, we're doing something right just by being here, but also it will beat you down. <laughs> it's a nice comfort where it's like, ah, yes, me, like ho- holding down the fort is a good thing. But then also it is such a privilege to be able to stay. Like there's very much in the early days of the pandemic, right? A lot of folks were kind of getting shamed for potentially being vectors for transmission and leaving the city and going to more suburban or rural places. And at the same time, a friend was making a really good point where she said, well, sometimes people have to leave. Yeah. People have to break their lease because they can't afford to keep paying X amount of money. They have to move back home with their parents and potentially put those communities at risk because it's just so untenable to live here in any day and age, pandemic or not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I love how you talk about in, in your essay about coming to New York for the first time, all of the mythology that surrounds it. And especially you grew up in the Philippines um, until you were 11. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you had pieces of New York pop culture that kind of introduced you to exactly how it would be here, right? <laughs> it was exactly as Sex in the City foretold, as the <laughs> foretold, as Will and Grace foretold. Yeah, <laughs> just like that. It's just like that. <laughs> One of the things that you are very clear about in your author bio and in the first page of your book is exactly how to pronounce your last name. Tell me about that. Well, first of all, thank you for saying it correctly uh, <laughs> here on the podcast. It's been this, in, I've had a very long journey with my name and coming to the United States, it's not something that folks are, you know, find easy to pronounce. So it's spelled O-R-T-I-L-E. And strangely enough, people tend to cut it off at Ortil, or uh, they'll do sort of the phonetics of it, like or tile, like you're choosing between granite, marble, <laughs> or tile. And so I had to sort of say, no, this, this is how you say it. But as a kid, you, particularly as an Asian American immigrant kid, I didn't want to talk back, right? To, to, it was the instinct was to just let it happen, mm-hmm. you know, not cause a fuss, don't make waves, don't rock the boat, because you are already here as a permanent alien or, or, mm-hmm. or, or a resident alien. You're here on papers that could easily be taken away. And it, it was so, it was an e- early education in the model minority myth where I had to be silent but also excellent in order to prove my worth and that I am worthy of my place in this country. And obviously that the book has to deal with, you know, tearing that all apart because Mm -hmm. the idea of the model minority myth is that white supremacy allows uh, minorities, particularly the model minority myth associated with Asians, Asian Americans, and how that allows us 
uh, distance from uh, the less desirable other. It's very much a myth mm-hmm. that's built on anti-blackness. So yes. you're not black and you're kind of approximating yourself. You're getting closer to whiteness, but of course you will, the whiteness will never let you be white as of someone who is brown, right. as someone who is not white. And so it's a really poisonous kind of survival tactic because there might be benefits for an Asian American kid in the long run to get the straight A's, to stay on the honor roll, but what does that mean when you grow up to become an adult and you still find yourself at a huge distance from darker uh, folks with darker skin than, than you? And you kind of then imagine a world where, ah, racism doesn't exist because I'm not white and I've done well. Right. Therefore, what are these experiences that black folks are talking about? Like, hmm, like mm-hmm. I don't know that I believe that. And that's literally how white supremacy works. We are divided yeah. and conquered and pit against each other in that way. And I, I, I really was touched by your fashion aesthetic. <laughs> yeah. Because one, it means you have you have great taste, and you <laughs> you you know how to bargain shop and make it look fantastic. And then there's this other, because you know I've seen you in, in person a few. I miss you. Um, I miss you. Oh my god! Yeah. And um, you always look great. Thank and you very much. That said, y- you talk a lot about what drew you to the preppy. Mm. Ivy League drag kind of style, and not all of it is great. (laughs) For sure. I mean, that's something that I've been dealing with or still in the process of unpacking and really critiquing, which is that so much of my style is informed by Americana, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so the the penchant for suits, the tailoring, the really put-together aesthetic, right? And it's great. Folks uh, respond well to it. I respond well to it. I think I look good in it. But at the same time, that attra- that uh, taste level was really cultivated by an aspiration to whiteness. As a kid, that was how I would uh, try to keep up with my white classmates, with my wealthier classmates. You know, I grew up in the era where it was double popping your Hollister polos. Like <laughs> yes. I worked at an Abercrombie and Fitch. I worked at Abercrombie Kids because um, I wasn't I wasn't a white male model, so I didn't work at Abercrombie and Fitch. But I worked at Abercrombie Kids because I was good with parents. Oh my <laughs> gosh! Really, really. I, I sh- actually should write about that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you should. Um, it was because then you know it was um, my eloquence was something that was more valued in that Mm -hmm. way rather than my sort of visual aesthetic appeal like I'm a skinny brown boy um and I wasn't like you know a proto marky mark but you know all that aside I uh, think you were so self-deprecating though in this book and I'm mad that you're (laughs) on my podcast and not a video show so we can gaze upon your beautiful face so oh thank you but also yes you're you're not marky mark that's yeah and so the that whole my my let's see the my fashion sense and my style is something that grew out of that impulse to be a model minority to to dress up in whiteness in a, in an attempt to be valued and considered uh, uh, a part of American society and it's interesting too because in the book I talk about another way where I tried to sort of emulate 
a white classmate, a boy I had a crush on. Yes. And um, <laughs> I went to Hot Topic, you know, the uh, spiky, cha- like spiky belts, <laughs> chains, like collars, whatever, leather. And when I bought, uh, was it a bracelet? Uh, and I, with my mom's money at the mall, and then I showed it to her. She got so mad at me and I, <laughs> I freaked out. I fainted. And so that was really silly. But it's interesting that the more approved avenue to American culture, the way that I could access American culture as a kid was what my mom deemed appropriate and what she deemed appropriate was this kind of J. Crew, like Tommy Hilfiger aesthetic versus something that is literally punk that yes. does. Uh, sort of resist authority. And even as a kid, I was already told, like, you know, that's not the way to go. What we're going to do is take the path of least resistance. And now I'm learning what the path of most resistance, the the best kind of resistance that I can do, like what path that looks like for me. Has your your style changed since you realized that at all? (sighs) That's the frustrating thing. It's like, I haven't really... Like, it's still, you know, I'm, like, wearing J. Crew chinos right now. Like In um, quarantine. In quarantine. So I was like, <laughs> I'll get dressed up for the podcast, like, as a treat. Um, and so I, it, it, it's interesting. The way that I'm now kind of playing with style and fashion is more in terms of gender. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been looking at a bunch of... Uh, women's quote-unquote women's shoes mm-hmm. and at a uh, pre-launch party uh, in February earlier this year where we distributed my galleys um, I wore oh god they're like three and a half inch boots <gasps> like there's a stacked heel and they felt amazing I just like your whole body changes when you're in like a nice absolutely boot, a heeled boot but then like halfway through the party like my feet were killing me that is Uh, the that's the rub and that's (laughs) literally wild to me that uh but so i've been kind of playing with that it's Mm. very slow and and jewelry too like i have this ear cuff that i want to wear at some point for the virtual tour um and yeah so i'm it's a slow unspooling of this kind of tightly wound like j crew kid but you know, it's a work in progress. <laughs> well, I love it. I love seeing it. This episode of the Maris Review is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio, reimagining book clubs by listening to your reading list rather than reading. It counts, I promise. Stay on top of your book club reading with these audiobooks. You can multitask with cleaning, cooking, and more. Listen to them while you work out, work on puzzles, or just relax. Discover a variety of new incredible titles on audiobooks. You can listen to titles such as The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, New York Times bestselling authors such as Britt Bennett and her new novel The Vanishing Half, relentless chilling stories such as Elizabeth Kay's Seven Lies, a personal favorite of mine, A Burning by Mega Majumdar, an electrifying debut novel. The newest title by J. Courtney Sullivan, Friends and Strangers, and a beautifully written story, The Last Train to Key West by Chanel Clayton. These titles are available wherever books are sold. 
tell me more about you use the uh, metaphor crabs in a bucket. Oh yeah. The whole chapter on that. Mm-hmm. It's a metaphor for the immigrant experience and how, yeah. as you were saying that perhaps there are some groups that are made to feel like competition mm-hmm. when actually that doesn't serve anyone to think of them that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Say more. So one thing that I, so in the book I talk about the metaphor of crabs in a bucket or crabs in a barrel, as some people might know it as, in terms of the Filipino diaspora. It's something that we always kind of uh, check each other on as Filipino immigrants, uh, the crab mentality. And it's interesting, it's something that, it's something of a topic that's frequently talked about in, Filip- in Filipino culture, even in sort of morning shows in the Philippines. I remember a segment uh, where an anthropologist, a, a social scientist was saying, you know, uh, the thing about crabs in a bucket, right, is that we use it as a metaphor for when one crab starts to escape the bucket, the other crabs will try to pull it down. Right. And that could be sort of a desire to maintain the status quo or to ensure a collective destiny, whether that's demise or something else. But one thing that the scientists mentioned was that what they're not trying to do is what one way to look at it is that they're not trying to pull the crab down. They're all trying to get up and out. Yes. And so it's then difficult to to understand the things that we can do as an individual, right? So if you're kind of ascending solo in the way that I did in, uh, for example, in college, uh, I was held as a favorite by the institution. And Mm -hmm. because of this kind of uh, delusion of mine that, ah, yes, what I'm experiencing as a queer brown immigrant is something that many other folks are also experiencing, this level of privilege. And that was not the case at all. It was tough to understand that in this bucket, there were some who were you know, able to survive, but also some that are still trapped and who, who face violence in you know, a white institution. And so the, what was really helpful about the crabs in a bucket metaphor is, and something that we're kind of talking about now in terms of, for example, uh, police quote-unquote reform or police abolition. Yes. In the sense that what you, what has to happen is that it just can't be one crab taking uh, themselves out of the bucket uh, one at a time. Ultimately, what we want to do is just work together to topple the bucket. Exactly, (laughs) to topple the bucket, like get rid of the barrel. And it talks, and it's an interesting sort of parallel to the way that these systems work, that a a system like the police, like American policing came out of slave patrols. Mm -hmm. And how do you redeem a system like that when its very foundation is something that is violent and is anti-Black? So we need to come up with something new. And that's the thing that I think is so scary in particular for a model minority person who's sort of buying into that myth is that there is already a sort of pre-planned formula here. There mm-hmm. is a path that has been laid out for me. It's, it's a path that's paved. You know, there's, there's water fountains along the path. <laughs> um, but 
there's another path that you can take that's not as well traveled and it's a little bit rockier. It's, there's a lot more work to be done on going mm-hmm. on that path. But ultimately, what's at the end of that path is maybe something better. And so it's very tempting to say, ah, you know what? Yes, I'll just play into the stereotype. I will be the model minority rather than envisioning something different and newer and better. That is what is scary about this work that we're doing. And that's why we have to do it. And I love how you talked about that at Vassar, that one, yes, you were embraced and it was a a wonderful privilege. Um, But also you were talking about how college kids are are ground zero for committing civil disobedience and um, doing these kinds of things for the mutual benefit. And I mean, not to be like now more than ever, but... (laughs) Fully, yeah. It's fascinating. I did a a panel with like a virtual Zoom panel with the Career Development Office around April, I believe, the Career Development Office at Vassar. So they were like, how do we figure out ways to keep the kids motivated and uh, bringing in some alums was really nice. And so I like to do this just because I love talking to uh, kids who are matriculating right now. And it was really inspiring because they're the ones who were talking really agitating at school they're the ones who are able to practice on this campus and figure out what resistance could look like what activism could look like in a contained space but now they're really pushing for the for issues much bigger than just a college campus they're talking about you know, town-gown relations, as we say, right? Mm -hmm. Especially in a, so Vassar College is a very sort of insular, like liberal arts school, but then it's in the middle of Poughkeepsie, New York, which is, uh, the downtown is predominantly black. The, uh, it's very much working class. And so the strain of, you know, the very privileged kids in this bubble in the middle of of a, a city that's, hoping to revitalize itself it's very it's it's tense and what does that mean when that police department is also trying to come after black teenagers who are in the library at Vassar and it's really it's really uncomfortable and it's really it's tough but they're the students there now I I was seeing they're they're the ones who are so committed to just holding the institution accountable for the violence that it enacts. And it's really exciting because one reason that we talk to the white folks in our lives to do better, to agitate, you know, folks in our family, and we do it because we love them. We want them to be better. And it's not because we're, I mean, we are angry. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of grief held here, but it's not, you know, it's just as easy to say, you know what, Uncle, I was going to say Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam <laughs> I mean, literally fully, Uncle Sam. <laughs> yeah, uh, Uncle Sam, like, I'm not talking to you anymore. You're done. You're out of my life. But it's another, wait, it's another thing to tell your uncle, your aunts, your cousins, your parents to be like, no, mom, dad, I want you to say Black Lives Matter because this is what that means. I need you to understand that racism isn't just action. It is a system that we live mm-hmm. in that is built on anti-Blackness. And 
that's why you hold people and institutions accountable because you want them to improve. And you even make the parallel in a later essay in the book that Confederate statues, well, now they're, you know, maybe slowly coming down, but like Mm -hmm. that there was also such a shrine to Marcos in Mm -hmm. the Philippines. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, the the dictator Ferdinand Marcos who ruled, ruled, you know, under martial law for about nine years, but his whole presidency was something like 20, 21 years. It's tough to see so many echoes of kind of authoritarian regimes mm-hmm. uh, in both my countries, in the U.S. and in this mm-hmm. book. Yeah. And it's even, it, that comes from uh, an essay about what we choose to remember. And so it's about how we position ourselves and and the things that are most important to us or that Mm -hmm. affect us the most. Yeah. Um, I mean, so much about the project of memoir, right, is literally dealing with memory. And Mm -hmm. to have an essay about memory in this book was, I thought, really important. I was a little bit nervous, actually, because what I what I'm trying, I tried to do in the book was to parallel the ways that we remember our histories, like the ways that the U.S. <laughs> has tried to, you know, sweep under the rug a lot of its more uh, imperialistic ventures into the Pacific, namely the Philippines, mm-hmm. and the, the ways that we choose to remember um, that also with the ways that we choose to remember our ex-boyfriends and our relationships and like deleting Instagram photos. And I was like, is this a reach? Like connecting these two, but it was important to me to, to, it was important to me to talk about this in registers that were both personal and cultural and societal. And it was um, exciting because the more that I connected that those two threads, the more it illuminate, the more that one would illuminate the other. And it was really, really important to think about documentation in this way, things like between Instagram posts or like texts between, you know, lovers, but then also the memorials that we have, the Mm -hmm. statues and the, the, the history books that we keep it just really served to show that what we keep is ultimately what determines history. Mm-hmm. And there's no easy answer, I think, in terms of that, uh, the, in terms of, for example, Confederate statues. And I think they should come down, put them all in like a museum of shame and then replace <laughs> monuments yeah. with, you know, whatever else, for, for example, monuments to black freedom and liberation. maybe. Yes. And, it's uh, it's something that I think it's a it's a big debate that we're going back into right now. The way that we're seeing a lot of uh, of uh, these monuments being taken down across the globe, yes, uh, not just in the states, but for example, in Bristol, there was that one uh, mm-hmm. slave uh, owner statue that went into the river. And then now, what's interesting is that apparent. I saw some screenshots that the Google Maps. Uh, Google Maps would now note that that memorial was in the middle of that river. Oh, interesting. It's really funny. So you can still like, go see it. If you exactly. Want. So it's like now you kind of have this interesting precedent of like what to do with a memorial 
that doesn't completely erase the thing because we want to be able to remember that violence and learn from it. But you also don't want it still in a position of power or in, right. uh, in, as a part of the landscape because the way that it could be interpreted is, you know, are you for or against? Like, and so to find it in the middle of a river is kind of poignant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. And you talk a lot in the book about Roland Barthes and mm. the mythologies that mm-hmm. you create both around our histories our personal histories and our cultural histories. Yes. And yeah, I feel like he would love the idea of that statue being in the river. <laughs> oh, for sure. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Like I have always loved Bart. Um, like what, fa- like this fascination that I have with an old gay Frenchman um, who was really just so tender and so intelligent and, you know, he comes up in the book a lot. And I, in the development of the book, I wanted to talk about uh, A Lover's Discourse, which is one of his later works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that book, he talks about sort of, I was going to say pathologizing, but uh, sort of defining gestures of, of love and uh, the lover's <laughs> gestures, really. Um, he talks about how, like, we say, I love you not for the other person, but it's for you. It's just like an utterance of the love cry. And it's just like, Ugh, stop. <laughs> um, drag me. And but then I ultimately, you know, used mythologies as a uh, as a keystone in the book because and it's one of his earlier works and really what you know, one of the books that established him as a cultural critic being that there are so many images and ideas that we deal with in society that are ultimately, you know, drained of meaning and then repurposed to signify something else as dictated by the ruling powers of our society. So in his case, he was talking about 1950s France and the bourgeois society that was talking about wrestling and astrology mm-hmm. and Greta Garbo's face and the latest Citroën, which is a car. And so it was an interesting framework to approach everything else with what I talk about in the book, the, the myths of weddings and marriage, the myths <laughs> of the Vassar girl, which is a sort of uh, stereotypical image of this uh, uh, affluent young woman who goes to Vassar to be radicalized. And irony of ironies, <laughs> when I went to Vassar, I was anything but radicalized. It wasn't until later on that I you know, kind of developed that sensibility. You know, the myths of getting to know people on Twitter and dating them and sliding into DMs and um, and, I, 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 you, you talk about Twitter in a way that I, I'm, I'm always hesitant to talk too much about Twitter mm. on here, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it, in terms of a tool of forming an opinion or of, of what you think someone's identity is, mm. it is so, it, it was kind of, it's revelatory. Like it's not only... I think because Twitter is meant to have your good stuff and your bad stuff. Mm-hmm. So that whatever you choose to put out, including the bad stuff, mm-hmm. is, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm rambling on, but. No, uh, please. But I, I agree. I think what you're, we're both getting at is um, the sense that because we put the good and bad stuff and everything in between on Twitter, it feels like it is so much more, more vulnerable than authentic. Another, exactly authentic quote unquote <laughs> candid and 
and, and so you kind of feel like you're there's an inflated sense of intimacy when you yes. you know make a Twitter friend. And in terms of a relationship, there are so many other factors that you only discover once you you know meet that person. Yes. Not to devalue digital connections, which are obviously so important now, all the more given that yes. we live in an age of distance. Uh, and, and you, I mean, you've certainly. You talk a lot in the book about using Grindr to, to make connections, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in New York City. Yeah, that's really kind of how I mapped out New York. And that's kind of how I, you know, very early on began to understand what neighborhoods were like. Like a Bushwick Grinder boy is going to be very different from a Hell's <laughs> Kitchen Grinder boy. It's like, mm, all right, <laughs> this is great anthropology for me. Um, but yeah, and ultimately, there's still so much to be gleaned from physical intimacy, from seeing what a shared life could look like, and and so many of that, so much of that is learned by proximity. And it's tough that now, currently in the middle yeah. of the pandemic, that's I don't know, neutered in a way, kind yeah. of at least recalibrated, definitely, uh, yeah. Yeah, that that's it's so hard. Let's talk a second about your marriage <sighs> wishes and fantasies because yeah. <laughs> not in a reality, not at all. <laughs> I feel like I am a white lady who wasn't that excited about having a traditional wedding, mm. and people were upset. Really, where was it coming from? Magazines, for sure. Maybe? Uh huh. And um expectations of what other people have done and mm -hmm. um it, it made people uncomfortable that i didn't value um the the things about a wedding that that a woman was supposed to value mm, supposed to right Suppo the, the supposed tos of course mm -hmm. um so so now you tell me uh yeah well so my marriage is in fantasies as you said uh and it's interesting because now, what even does a marriage look like in, after, you know, in the middle and after a pandemic? Uh, and I've been thinking more and more about this um, in terms of figuring out what dating looks like in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. And I once asked myself recently, God, do you, do you need a boyfriend? Do you really need a husband? Like, I've been so lucky and so privileged to have, you know, independent uh, independence and resources to really fuel that independence, as well as a fantastic support network, a great chosen family who feel like my partners in life already. Like, I get so much from one friend, and then what I don't get from that one friend, I get from one or two others. And it, it's so much of, like, I can rely on my network, my village. Mm -hmm. to really be able to thrive and survive and everything in between in, in life these days. And the pandemic, uh, the uprisings, and the, this, uh, the end of my mother's life have really um, put that into stark detail. Mm -hmm. I have people. And sometimes the question becomes, what more do I need? What more do I need in a marriage, in, in a partner? And 
you know, I'm, I'm probably coming up off across to, to many listeners as like, ah, you're a kid, you'll learn, like, you'll need someone. But, you know, and I, I don't doubt that. And I, I do love the romance of, of someone that is there for you at the end of the day, that you are that person's person and they are yours. And I'd love to try, but I don't necessarily need it anymore right now you're already a complete person that's the thing right like that's what we tell ourselves all the time and it's just like but it it is still nice that's all it's just such great icing (laughs) from what i hear (laughs) um matt before i let you go tell me about some books you've been reading and what you'd like to recommend oh for sure um so if i may suggest two yes please um I'm reading H's for the Hawk. Uh, if folks remember H's mm-hmm. for the Hawk by Helen McDonald. Um, it's a memoir of grief. And uh, uh, so that's something that I'm sort of mm-hmm. navigating at the moment. Um, it's, it, I'm still in a sort of anticipatory grief stage, but uh, it's fascinating. There's no one way to grieve is what I'm learning. Um, and as a part of that, uh, I'm now reading another Bart, actually. I'm revisiting mm-hmm. um, Bart's, uh, it's, it's a book published um, after his death called Morning Diary, so M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mm-hmm. and he started the collection of these notes uh, af- the day after his mother passed away, and they were very close, like he lived with her for much of his adult life, and he was the one to take care of her at the end of her life, and so it's really so heartrending to see this supremely intelligent person, someone who was lauded as so fantastically brilliant, and then to sort of see him kind of fall apart uh, in in the aftermath of his mother's death, but also the intelligence still reigns supreme mm. in these notes. It's really, really quite fascinating. Um, and even then, the full gag, he was like, in one of the notes, he was like, Maybe there's something in this, like maybe he maybe planned to write a book about all of this, but then he died soon after his mother did actually. So that was really a bummer. But yeah, those are the two books that I'm reading. Um, mm. Each is for the Hawk by Helen McDonald and Morning Diary by Roland Bard. My heart goes out to you for having to read those books. I'm, I'm, I'm glad, I hope they're giving you comfort. I wish I could hug you. <laughs> oh, I wish I could hug you too. And thank, thank you. There you. is so much comfort in, you know, as, that's why we're here. There's comfort as well as everything else in literature. Yes. Um, thank you so much, Matt. Thank you, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>